Max Brockman! Hello, fellow humans. My name is Max Brockman, and I like to tell jokes. Let's do that together right now. Sometimes I like to smoke a plant. I won't say which plant, but I will say this. It starts with marijuana, and it ends with both of my arms stuck in Pringles cans. <laughs> Sometimes I like to smoke a plant. I will not say which plant, but I will say this. It starts with marijuana, and it ends with me opening 20 stores and gentrifying the neighborhood. <laughs> Okay, uh, this is AA Beyond Belief, the podcast, and today I'll be speaking with comedian Max Brockman, based out of Eugene, Oregon. Max is a person in recovery, an atheist, and I think he's pretty funny. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Hi, Max. Uh, thank you so much for recording this podcast with me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, I've listened to your album, Normal Within Reason, more than several times, and I love it. Oh, thank you. And I'm really kind of fascinated by the story behind the album and the jokes. You know, you wrote those jokes and you've been performing comedy for several years. Um, and you mentioned in your album that something happened in your life where you stopped writing jokes. Was that your bottom? It, it really was. And that's the funny thing. All the physical things, my bottom wasn't what signified it for me. What it was, was for the first time, because when I was uh, 22, I first started doing comedy as kind of a way to get over my social anxiety. I couldn't really talk to people until I got on stage. And then uh, that kind of helped it out. So for the first time in my life, I couldn't do that. So that was totally my bottom. You mentioned that the writing jokes was your way of kind of making sense out of life. It kind of helped you through life. Right. Yeah. It was kind of my, uh, exactly my way to navigate life. So when you got to that point where, you know, you were beginning to experience blackouts and your addiction was getting bad. So you sought help, I assume, through a 12-step program. And when, they, when you were there, it was recommended that you keep a journal during your first year of recovery. And you did what you know to do, which is to write jokes. Right. That was the first suggestion that made a lot of sense to me because I've been keeping a joke journal for years. So I, I kept two journals. I, did, I kept doing my joke journal and then kept uh, other type of sobriety journal, and they kind of started to melt together as the year went through. Well, I found that interesting. You know, um, a couple, I think the podcast before the last, I interviewed somebody who wrote a poem every day of his um, sobriety. He said that writing poetry kind of helped him express feelings that he couldn't express otherwise and to kind of understand, you know, what he was going through. Um, does, does, does this kind of do the same thing for you when you write jokes? Does it kind of help you uncover some truth about yourself through the jokes? Absolutely. Once I kind of write it, I can see it from more of a third-person point of view, I guess. See it in a whole different perspective. I was thinking, that's what I was thinking. And, you know, in particular, the joke about the bike helmet, which I found, I found it was really, really funny, and I was laughing. But behind that joke, there's real tragedy behind it. Um, is there a lot of truth to your jokes? Um, I usually say it's about 75% true, but most of my, I always have, there's always truth to the joke, but you have to have room to, to wiggle a little bit. But yeah, the truth behind that joke is 100% true. Yeah. Yeah. So three overdoses. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm just trying to find a way to uh, 
to make things a little bit lighter and to kind of show people that uh, you can find the the funny thing about some dark stuff. (laughs) Yeah, you know, uh, I've always thought that people would be surprised that when you go to an AA meeting, and probably NA is the same way, that there's always laughter in every meeting. It's like, you know, that's how we find a way to, I guess, deal with it. Yeah, and people think that a lot of people in 12-step programs don't have a good sense of humor, but it's the exact opposite. I've started to do shows that are primarily for 12-step audiences, and they have a great sense of humor for when it comes to that kind of stuff. Like, I have a joke that basically insinuates that AA is a cult. That's a joke, but it does it does great. It does really well in 12-step uh, crowds. Yeah, I like that. You uh, you use that in your album, too, I think you said. Um, but I kind of like being in cults. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, I kind of right. well, I like that concept that it, it could be a good cult. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I, uh, I often tell people, you know, I remember, I remember cults because I grew up in the 70s. And we had some really, you know, hardcore cults back in those days. And so I, it's hard for me to relate to AA being like that. But yeah, we are kind of cultish. But yeah, but that word, that word's not right, but yeah. So, um, do you think that the humor kind of helps us with, you know, understanding, um, or somehow communicating our stories? Because, you know, whenever I, whenever I go to a speaker meeting and, you know, someone's telling their story, they, they always look back and there's always some laughter from the, from the speaker and also the audience. And I think come, some of it comes from the fact that we're talking about something in the past that we've kind of grown out of. Right. And, and just the absurdity of what we're, we're talking about kind of breeds the comedy, even if what you're talking about isn't, is just entirely serious. So when you look back at all those jokes that you wrote during your first year, were, was it you mentioned that it kind of coincided with your other journal did it help you um see your growth or how you changed or how you developed or how you got through things during your recovery absolutely when i first started writing i was writing about past drug use and then as the year goes i start to write more about just my development and just different things so towards the end I, i'm getting some more personal development and yeah, it's definitely, I can see how, I have a long way to go, but I can see how in one year there was a lot of change mm-hmm. just through that. Because some of your jokes were about um, issues other than addiction, like codependency. Yeah, it, I was uh, maybe six months in and I decided to start a relationship, which I mm-hmm. think was a bad idea, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I was told by my sponsor, but you know what, you got to try it for yourself. But I think that kind of helped me confront my issues with codependency also. Yeah. Yeah, which I, is obviously going to be an ongoing thing. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's cool that you were able to discover that, but also um, just you know write it, write about it, and I think that it helps other people understand the issue as well because you know sometimes codependency can be kind of a complex thing to understand, but when you describe it mm. the way that you describe it in your album, it makes perfect sense. Well, that's kind of the challenge I had because sometimes I had these weighty issues, but. When you're doing a comedy club, you can't, you, you have to get to the point. Yeah. <laughs> you have to get a punchline within 15 to 20 seconds. So the, the challenge is how do I boil that down and explain it? And, and some other things too that I talk about, you kind of have to boil it down a little bit. Yeah. I guess I'm so analytical. I mean, the, I think the first time that I listened to your album, I just, I just relaxed and I laughed and I smiled and I enjoyed it. 
And then I see, I listened to this many times <laughs> and then I started really listening and trying to, and I was, and I was hearing your, I was hearing your story through, through your, through those jokes. And, you know, it's like, I could see, I could see beneath them that some of the reality and, you know, I don't know if the audience is aware of any of that. Maybe they are in some, on some deeper level, but that just absolutely fascinated me for some reason. Thank you. It's, I've always written personal stuff. So mm-hmm. I, it was kind of weird when I first got sober because I, uh, or try to get sober. I, uh, uh, I, I stopped for like three months doing comedy, which is the longest break I've ever had in seven years mm-hmm. because you know, you're at the bars all the time. So when I, when I went back, like immediately I had seven jokes about it. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a, for me, it was kind of a thing to help with accountability early on also, mm-hmm. because if I know I, I'm working on this five minutes about being sober, I better stay sober. <laughs> yeah. So for the first like three or four months, that was a good accountability to have. Mm-hmm. And did, did you think that you would ever perform those when you were writing them? Yeah, I, I knew I would. You would? Okay. <laughs> well, just because I've always written very personal stuff. Yeah, yeah. I've never been kind of like a two ducks walking across the street kind of guy. Right, right. So how did the idea of making the album come about? I, I've wanted to do one for about three years, and I, I could have, but I could I didn't because... I obviously wasn't there emotionally and I didn't have, I wanted to have a, a structure for it because I, I do one liners, short jokes, but I didn't want to just do an album of just short jokes. Mm-hmm. So after a year of the journal, I, I kind of just popped in my mind that I could do it that way. Mm-hmm. And I was emotionally ready to do the, to do the album. And then also it was a pretty good uh, structure that I could try. Yeah. But I, I had not done it until the, the first time I did it was on the night of the recording, so I was a little nervous about it, obviously. Oh, oh interesting. Yeah. That was the first time you did that routine and you actually recorded it. Yeah, yeah, and and it was, you know, I spent a good amount of money to get the right person to master it, and it was uh-huh. a lot of effort, so it was kind of a gamble. But yeah. uh, glad it worked out, yeah. <laughs> so do you use that as like, as a routine that you take out and, and do um, on, like, on a regular basis? I... I I stopped using those jokes when I do normal comedy audiences because mm-hmm. I just want to write more stuff. But mm-hmm. when I do shows that are primarily 12-step, I will do that. I do a, a longer version where I've added more jokes to it. Oh, okay. So do you get gigs that are um, for 12-step people? Yeah, I've been starting to do uh, more and more. And then I actually run my own show in Eugene that is a monthly recovery comedy showcase. Yeah, I saw that the Sober Thoughts Recovery Showcase. What? How? What, yeah, we've can you had, talk about that a little bit. Uh, I I heard that someone in Portland was doing a show featuring recovery comics, and I really liked that idea um, because a lot of people in my groups want to go to comedy, but they don't want to. It's not necessarily they don't want to go to a bar. They're used to going to bars to see their friends do stuff, but they don't want to go comedy. A lot of times it's like 9 p.m. and there's a lot of drinking and it, it can be kind of a hostile environment for people mm-hmm. in recovery. Mm-hmm. And then the other side, there are some family-friendly sh- shows, but that's not necessarily what they want either because mm-hmm. it's you no know, cursing. It's for kids. <laughs> it's not it's not comedy, like right. as far as what I see. Yeah. So I run a couple of shows, and one of them was a 7 p.m. slot on a Friday, and I just realized that that would be a pretty good spot for uh, a sober-themed show. Because early enough that people could come out and it's not going to be heavily drinking at the venue. So, so it, uh, yeah, so it, I... 
Is it kind of like an open mic thing where people will kind of try out their stuff or are these people that um, ha- already have like routines down that they, that they perform? Yeah, it's, it's a professional showcase. Yeah. Okay. So everyone is at least a couple years in and it's a nice curated hour and a half show. That sounds so neat to have that. Yeah. It's nice to, yeah, to have something a little, a little different. Yeah. So um, we're, you know, I've been talking to people who have different creative talents. Um, you know, the guy who wrote poetry, there are people um, in recovery who write music, who play music. Um, now you with your comedy. Um, and, you know, a lot of people think that, I think there's a misconception that uh, that their talent was helped through their addiction. And did you have any concerns like during that time when you were getting into recovery that you might lose your ability to write jokes? Did you have any fear of that, whatever? And have you noticed any difference in how you write as now as compared to before? Absolutely, because I had always tied my joke writing and just performance into how like different I am and weird. So, and that ties into the album Normal Within Reason, the title. But so I was afraid that I was not going to be able to write jokes anymore. But then I realized a few months in that it's really, it doesn't really affect the creative part of me. It just affects the production part of me. I could be so more productive now that I'm sober, but my creativity is exactly the same. Okay. So, so you're more productive. You can actually, you know, before when you were drinking and drugging, you could actually, you know, create the jokes and so forth, but not actually do anything with them. Right, because I might write down an idea. Like for a joke, you might think of a concept, which is the setup and the punchline that sets up the joke and the punchline. But you have to edit that joke and you have to remember that you wrote it down. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you can't do that when you're not sober. So at first, I think I was afraid that I would lose the inspiration a little bit if I was sober all the time. But it, it's still there. It's just you have to do a little bit more work to find things, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. So have you received much feedback from people about the album, um, people in the recovery community? I mean, I, I did read a review on a website, SeriousComedy.com, which was really positive. Um, but are you getting a reaction from people that are in recovery or just maybe even not in recovery? Maybe people are still using. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm getting um, a lot of different uh, reactions, but mostly positive. I think the negative ones might not uh, talk to me directly but uh yeah mostly positive reviews (laughs) um yeah and then whenever i do um shows for 12-step audiences it's mostly positive i could tell that there's some some negativity there but it's Mm -hmm. not uh vocal (laughs) yeah i would think that um it would it might actually help somebody you know um to be able to recognize something about themselves through your through your routine but maybe maybe they're just like, you know, I was the first time. I just kind of listened and laughed. And there's something about your delivery and that just kind of provokes a person to laugh. And, 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 and maybe they don't do what I, what I was doing before this interview was, was really kind of analyzing all of, all of it. Um, I don't know. Do you think people see the deeper levels behind these jokes? I think it depends on the person. Like some people that aren't so comedy-minded might not. But mm-hmm. then some people that are a little bit more of where that might, I do have some friends that kind of notice that kind of thing, but they're kind of ignoring it because comedy is notorious for people to have issues with alcoholism. Right. So I think a lot of people want to kind of 
avoid that, which is fine, you know, yeah. but they don't want to really talk about, which is kind of an interesting dynamic that I'm in because I, I go to meetings almost every day and then I spend time with uh, alcoholics in recovery and then I go out at night and I'm with alcoholics that are active. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of inter- an interesting dynamic there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a sponsor actually. It's a former sponsor now who was a comedian, and he, oh, he would play. Um, he he would travel sometimes up to South Dakota for whatever reason. He went up there a lot, and I was able to see his act a few times, and I was really kind of surprised because he he was someone who always had a sense of humor, you know, and he would like crack jokes in meetings and stuff. But his routine, it was like he was acting. It was like a totally different huh. person. You know, is that what it's like for you? Or do you see it kind of like acting or are you, do you feel like you're just being yourself? It's kind of a mix of two uh, of, of both because it, my, I do have a character on stage mm-hmm. and it's basically just how I see myself dialed up to 11. And it, it took me a few years to kind of figure that out. So I, I I'm kind of dialing it down a little bit now after I recorded the album, but at the height, I was like very much, you know, go up and start, screaming and deadpan that's kind of my my uh-huh. uh my thing which was originally just a way to get people to listen because you're doing comedy in a small town where people don't really understand the concept of comedy so it was my way to get people to understand that yeah it's my time to, to talk for a little bit yeah. <laughs> but that kind of became that kind of became my character so it is me but it's definitely way higher and i can I'm learning how to turn it up and down when I need to, because it can turn people off depending on the show, and then mm-hmm. it can really work depending on the show. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it worked pretty well. Um, I thought it was pretty ingenious to have that type of a delivery. You know, it's just um, I think the delivery probably has a lot to do with with the success of the of the whole routine. Well, thank so. you. Yeah, it's just kind of a thing I've been trying to develop. Mm-hmm. So. Um, How's your, how are things going for you now? How's, how's your recovery? Um, how's it, how are you balancing your meetings and your regular job and your comedy and, um, how are you, how are you keeping all that together? Uh, things are good. I, I've been getting pretty good balance. Things are different for me because I work a uh, day job from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. and then mm-hmm. I go out and do comedy right after. And so I sleep in and then hit a noon meeting. So I, I have it, I have it pretty balanced out, but, uh, it's different because it's a different schedule than a lot of people hold. Yeah. And do you work comedy almost like a, like every day? Is it a, is a daily thing every night? Yeah. Like five to five to seven weeks, almost every night. And then every night I'm not working my day job. I'm on the road. Usually just like uh, somewhere in Oregon or um, sometimes uh, uh, Seattle and then a little bit of Northern California. And do you have like a regular place that you perform at? And, And are you in Eugene? Uh, yeah, in, in Eugene. I grew up in Eugene. I run a couple shows down here, and we, we just kind of have a scattershot of shows. We just have like 10 shows at different venues. Mm-hmm. So it's a very it's, guerrilla warfare type scene. It sounds like a pretty good uh, city for, for the arts to be able to have that it kind is. of... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a great city for recovery, too. We have a great community down here. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, there's actually... Uh, I'm kind of into the whole secular AA thing, and there's actually... I think there's a secular group in Eugene and they had, um, oh, their conference, the widening the gateway conference. I think last year was in Eugene. I can't remember, but anyway, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, people in our, that come to our website and listen to our podcast that live in, uh, the, that area. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think it's more accepted in the other meetings than 
some other places that I've been to just at, when I was visiting seemed a little bit more um, hostile in other places, just, you know, for uh, secular mm-hmm. people and medians, right? Yeah. And you see yourself that way as, as sort of agnostic on the whole business? Uh, yeah, I consider myself more more of an atheist. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of went through, I grew up Catholic, and then when I was 16, I started to question it and went through the whole beers thing, being mad and then not. So by the time I got into AA, I was kind of over that, where I can just mm-hmm. kind of realize that it's just the way that other people see reality or the universe is the word God. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and yeah, I'm having a good time with it. My sponsor is religious, but he's never tried to convert me. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I see that a lot. Sometimes, you know, um, it works out well to have somebody who, you know, is religious and someone who's not, you know, um, because when you boil down to it, I think anyway, when you get down to your recovery, it's more important the things that we do rather than anything that we believe. And people can believe what they want. So, mm-hmm. so anyway. Yeah, when you, when you boil down our two beliefs, me and my sponsor, it's pretty similar. It's just the difference between believing in, in a conscious power, you know, yeah. and then a power that's not conscious. And it's yeah. really not that much of a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of see it that way too. Um, when I when I get right down to it, um, that everything that we actually do in our recovery and everything that we experience before our recovery is pretty much similar. It's just whatever we think empowers us to make these changes in our lives that might differ how we express it, how we describe it. So, mm-hmm. and it's probably a much less deal, as you said, where in where you live, maybe than the part of the country that I live in. Right, and it depends on the meeting. If anyone's listening, you. I have a lot of friends who are comics that try AA and then they they have issues with that, but mm-hmm. they just go to one meeting. You know, I mean, you might have to go to more than one meeting just to find the right spot. You know, that's a very good point because every single meeting is different and every single group is different and every single meeting within the group is different. It all kind of depends on who's right. there. Yeah. Right. So to kind of turn things around a little bit, to finish up a little bit, do you mind if I ask you a few questions about just being a comedian in general? Absolutely. Okay. First, the, my first question for you is: How do you feel about hecklers? Do you get hecklers, and how do you deal with them? I, 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 this went through a phase for me when I was new. I hated hecklers more than anything in the entire world. <laughs> yeah. Well, because we were trying to build a scene in Eugene where there's there's no comedy, so we're trying to get this concept that people understand comedy. So I took uh-huh. like a militant stance against atheists, or against <laughs> against atheists, <laughs> against right. against hecklers. Okay. So. And this is when I was trying to figure out my, my persona. So I was even more awkward than I am now and, and the way I am on stage. So what I would do when I was watching someone heckle, I would go up to them, not on, not on stage, and say, please stop talking <laughs> in a very, very <laughs> awkward way, which yeah. worked, but it, it kind of alienates people. So over the years, I've, I've gotten a little bit better with it because I'm a one-liner, so... I'm just doing jokes. So right. I've gotten better at doing the jokes and then bantering in between. Mm-hmm. But um, I've, I've gotten a lot better. I've gotten better at dealing with them in a way that they will feel comfortable staying. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I've actually been having issues with hecklers at the uh, Sober Thoughts show, oh. which I didn't see coming. Well, I think it's because a lot of people, it's their first comedy show that they've been to. Oh. So, but so I was able to talk to some people and then they said, stayed and had a great time and stopped heckling. They just, this one person is heckling. I'm like, you gotta stop doing that. And then the second time, and she goes, what? Like, I can't talk. I'm like, well, not 
you can't interrupt the performance. And she goes, oh, okay. And that was it. <laughs> she just so didn't it explain. Right, right. And so I'll probably make an announcement. It's something mm-hmm. I've never done on my shows, but people do it in Salem, Oregon. They do an announcement before every show yeah. that, about heckling. So I should probably do that. <laughs> well, that's smart. I guess that people... But they, some they, comics love it. Yeah. Some comics really deal with... I have a friend who kind of encourages it, and then it kind of really works out for him. Mm-hmm. So do you... Um, you mentioned that like when you first started doing comedy, you would shake and you were very nervous, but after about doing it for about six months, it got better. But do you still kind of... Do you get a bit of a, an adrenaline rush, or do you feel like nervous before you go on and perform? I get an adrenaline rush now, but it's more positive. Yeah. And it just depends on the show. I mean, at this point, I've done most shows I'm doing now. I've done similar things to it before. Yeah. But if I do something that's very different, like the first time I did a theater that was a very big crowd or like a recording for something, then that, you know, like a little bit more nervous there. Yeah. Well, I get that way when I do podcasts, actually. And I've talked about this mm. before. I get like before the podcast begins, I'm very, very nervous about it. And I was kind of anxious about this one because I wasn't quite sure. You know, I'm kind of a serious-minded person. I love comedy and everything, but I'm afraid I'm going to bring people down. I have a comedian on, and <laughs> I'm just going to be serious about it and everything. But but I said, oh, I just have to. I have to be who I am and just you know talk about what right. I found what I found interesting and ask the questions. But what happens with me is okay. I'm all nervous and jittery before I do the podcast. Then I do it. I have the conversation with the person and. Then I do get a big rush, almost like a high that, wow, you know, I, I go through this emotional roller coaster. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of weird, but I think it's addictive. And it's why I keep wanting to do another podcast after the last one. Mm-hmm. So I can kind of see how, you know, anyone. It, it, it is addictive. It, yeah. And that's something I had to watch out for when I went back to comedy after that three months. I wasn't really worried about grabbing a beer at the bar. Mm-hmm. But I was worried about having a good set and then wrapping all my emotions into that or having a bad set and relapsing or putting all my emotions into that, too. Yeah. So what's it like when you have a bad set? Have you ever just totally bombed before? Oh, yeah. Well, especially because of my style. So I'm very, people that haven't heard me, I'm very um, in one way. I had the jokes I do and uh-huh. I do it in a very specific way. I don't have, basically, I don't have ways to to generalize like some comics if they're not doing well can kind of just general it out a little bit and kind of soften their load their landing but i can't Mm -hmm. so if i'm not doing well i just kind of have to keep going (laughs) yeah but uh but over the years it's that that number the percentage of bombing has gone down Uh and i bombed enough well i mean i've been on stage at least a thousand times so at this point you've bombed enough that you know what it's like (laughs) it's not the end of the world and yeah. at this point, if if I have a decent crowd, I think I could do pretty well, even yeah. though I have a specific style. But yeah, there's some some that you don't see coming that can really hit you hard. Yeah, well, it's interesting but that you I'm said a, that you, you that you've had it, you've experienced enough that you can get through it. Um, it's kind of like you know you're not really codependent about with your audience necessarily. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that's actually really interesting. I never thought about that. But uh, yeah, I yeah I, I'm not. I don't really even look at the audience. It's yeah, it's it can be rough if you're doing a long set, but yeah. you just you kind of. And Roddy Dangerfield said that when you're bombing, you basically have two choices. You can either you can break, so that's when you say something like, "Oh, that didn't work," or mm-hmm. you know you acknowledge that it didn't work well, which will get a laugh. 
from the audience, but then you lose their respect and they, they don't see the character anymore. So his thing was, cause he would just do wife joke, self-depreciation wife joke. He was uh-huh. very specific on what he did. Yeah. And he said he went 10 years without getting a laugh in his book, <laughs> Wow, <laughs> which I, which I'm not surprised by but in, in the time that he was doing it and what he was doing. Uh-huh. So his thing was be a tank. Like you have to stay in your character. And even if you're bombing, you don't get a single laugh. It it doesn't matter. Just just stay in your character. You don't know what's going to happen. You know who's going to walk in, and uh, yeah, I actually had a show a few weeks ago that was kind of like that. I the shows I've been doing have been great. They've been amazing. But one show, they asked me to open with the Our Father, mm. which was a little rough. <laughs> so uh, when I I didn't, and then had kind of a rough set, but I was able to stick it through. And then a few people came up to me and said that they had a great time. So. Good. Good. You, you never know. Yeah. Well, that's kind of funny. That would be kind of a, kind of weird to do the Our Father like that. Well, because I, I know it, but I don't want to be dishonest. Right. <laughs> right. Right. It's always something we have to deal with out, out here. But I yeah I don't I don't participate in that either. But anyway, so you do mention you do work outside of Oregon sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. yeah mostly the West Coast. Hmm. Okay. Well. Um. Where could people learn about you? Is uh, do you have like a website or anything? Um, yeah, uh, maxbrockman.com. Okay, maxbrockman.com. And I know you can get the album on Amazon. It's also available on iTunes. Absolutely. So we'll put a link to that so that people can find it. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate this conversation very much. Thank you so much. This is great. Well, that concludes another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you, Max, so much for participating. Uh, To learn more about Max, you can visit his website, maxbrockman.com. And that's Brockman with two N's, maxbrockman.com.